Blog Talk Radio. Greed, violence, bigotry are not human nature. It's the nature of the few people that's running the system. And they try and teach us to be this way. Gotta fight greed and find a way like Jay. Find a way like Martin King or Fred Hampton. It's not all about dancing. It's revolution anthem. Get dedicated and know the best way to get educated. Questioning everything you're told that you're created. Always hate the dishonesty. The corporate news atrocity. Don't think you're alone. In 2003, three million marched against the Iraq war in Rome. If men had the babies, you know they wouldn't force them to choose or fight for their right to have abortions. School's not for nonviolence or relief. For poverty in the streets, it's a lot they not. Teaching. A lot they not reaching Cause they preaching the allegiance To a system that invades other countries like Legion Not teaching equality A tolerant philosophy It started But the sharing seems to stop in kindergarten Know the best way to get educated Questioning everything you're told since you're created Know the best way to get educated Questioning everything you're told since you're created Try and hide the sexism But the genders raised different Try to fight communism But got the goods made mostly by China's system You call Bank of America And end up talking to an Indian U.S. Airways, it's the same, it's not different It's NAFTA we living in I told you the question, I still question 9-11 You believe in a government that lies every second Think I'm lying, go read the Tuskegee experiment Why should I be a Democrat? They reform when they act, they rap corporate America The hook is left back, not about white and black It's humanity, it has to be It's one race that needs to unite In the action we saw the civil rights movement Shot down as proof They kill revolutionaries, but can't kill the revolution The spirit of Che and King ring with solutions We honor Cause they die trying for improvement Know the best way to get educated Questioning everything you're told since you're created Know the best way to get educated Questioning everything you're told since you're created They say we need energy solutions And the question is Where the car they made in the 90s of electric is tried Complaints made about it could be rectified The truth is that the corporations made it die I hate most owners, they crazy, they keep making them The Cowboys owner building a billion dollar stadium Democrats and Republicans work together to pursue The goal of keeping wealth in the hands of a few They say they for freedom, I know how they don't care They don't go in cause they care, it's for resources there Resources everywhere, they send forces over air to Iraq To come back with the oil, it's not fair And sanctions often kill more people than the wars They have people starving, not the leaders, but the poor Sanctions killed 500,000 before and I Iraq back before they even started with the war. Know the best way to get educated. Questioning everything you're told since you're created. Know the best way to get educated. Questioning everything you're told since you're created. A thing that's a mess is a division in the left. We need to come together in a quest for the best. If we stop the division, I'm envisioning the strength. All the problems we face are from the same corporate head. The same corporate red gotta face what we need. Unity to fight discrimination and greed. Stop bickering and ease. This call and don't fall, cause the injury to one is the injury to all, if you think that's not relevant, just think of us as a million ants against the elephant, use your intelligence, it's not hysteria, look up the plot of the school of the Americas, they want to make a merger, expanding their business by occupation equals murder, some gains have been made by attacking the system, it wasn't made by giving up or finding ignorance to living, it's the saying that said, when they came for other heads, I did nothing, cause it wasn't like me, it was them, I didn't cry, cause it wasn't my tribe that was dead, by the time they came for me, the was no one to assess, cause by that time there wasn't nobody left, know the best way to get educated, questioning everything you're told since you're created, know the best way to get educated, questioning everything you're told since you're created.
In Israel and the occupied territories, a leading cabinet member and former Israeli army commander who once called for the mass killing of Palestinians has launched his candidacy for prime minister. Transportation Minister Shaul Mofaz enters the race to replace Prime Minister Ehud Olmert just days after reports emerged he once instructed Israeli troops to kill 70 Palestinians a day. day, day, day. Okay, I'm back. And this show is what I have, Christopher Hitchens and, um, oh, <laughs> Reggie Jackson, therefore, the, her abolishing the death penalty or anti-death penalty, and they're going to be debating two clowns who are for the death penalty. Want to keep the sound base going? I love killing people, and so I'm not going to talk much. This is going to last a whole two hours, and tomorrow I'm going to do a show on Death Penalty where I'll do some talking, and I'll have some uh, audio files on it. And so, and tomorrow you'll be able to call in if you want to. If you don't want to, fine, don't. Anyway, this is called Is a Death Penalty Effective? A deterrent, justified, and expensive. Answer to all three is nah. So anyway, let's find out what they have to say. Take your seat. Uh, my name is Ed Koch. Let me give you uh, just a little uh, background on how the uh, evening will uh, proceed. Um, in a moment, I'm going to be uh, introducing the editors of the uh, respective uh, magazines, The Nation and uh, National Review, but you should uh, know the following. This is the second in a uh, series of uh, debates. Uh, the first one, uh, which uh, occurred last uh, May, uh, was on the issue of affirmative action, uh, and uh, this one, uh, totally uh, new, totally different, uh, is resolved the death penalty uh, should be abolished. And in a moment, uh, we'll go to the debate, and I'll explain uh, the uh, time allocations. Maybe I ought to do it right now. Each of the uh, uh, four speakers will uh, speak for uh, ten minutes, then uh, there will be uh, two five-minute uh, rebuttals, uh, only one five minutes for each side, and then there'll be a, a brief intermission when we come back. Uh, there will be the questions from uh, the audience. Uh, however, uh, you should also know uh, that the event is being televised, and uh, it uh, will, in the future, appear on C-SPAN and uh, PBS. So, our uh, first uh, individual to be uh, introduced uh, is the publisher and editorial director of The Nation, Victor Levasky. Victor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, but I don't, not only, not only do I not get to debate, I, I was going to say 
a brief word about the nation's long-standing opposition to capital punishment, and then I open the anthology that Katrina Vandenhubel put together on the occasion of the 125th anniversary of the nation and discovered that in 1887, E.L. Godkin, the founding editor, wrote an editorial calling for the hanging of the anarchists in the Haymarket uh, situation in Chicago. So instead of uh, recalling the nation's longstanding uh, opposition and great principle in this matter, uh, I want to thank a few people. I want to thank Ed Koch for agreeing to uh, put himself in a, to be a, an immoderate moderator once again on our behalf of both magazines. I want to thank uh, the Reverend Jackson and Chris Hitchens for coming and representing us, and I'll say in advance in such an effective way. Uh, I want to thank the Nation Institute, which is our sponsoring organization for this thing, and particularly Peter Meyer, who anyone who, who's on the platform knows about, but also Sandy Wood and Ham Fish, who sits atop that great structure. And, uh, and then, uh, lastly, I want to thank especially Alan Sagner and Ed Jaffe, who not only have helped us put this together, but are planning a subsequent uh, 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 debate in the Berkshires on the, between these two magazines on the issue of government support of the arts. Uh, a afterwards, as Ed will tell you, uh, the, um, there'll be a gathering that you're all invited to where you can debate who won the debate. Uh, I should also finally say that dealing with National Review, I regret to report, uh, has been a pleasant experience in the background and that they're giving uh, civility a, a good name. I, so, thank you. And our um, second uh, introducer, if you will, or welcomer, is uh, John O'Sullivan, editor of National Review. Well, thank you, um, uh, Mayor Koch, for that introduction. If that's the representative view, uh, maybe I'll change side and come out against the death penalty. Um, I'm... Uh, <laughs> On the, other, on the other hand, if it's not the representative view, I won't. Um, I'd like to um, join Victor Navasky in the various uh, thanks which she issued from the platform and begin by saying what a pleasant, agreeable experience it has been dealing with the nation, particularly since the dealings have been conducted at the Park Bistro restaurant, which is my favourite. Secondly, I'd like to thank the people who did the organising for this because Victor and I are really uh, literally front men um, the real hard work has been, been done on behalf of the nation by Peter Meyer and on behalf of National Review by Jack Fowler and I'd like to express my thanks to both of them. Um, of course it goes without saying that I'm thanking uh, all speakers but particularly Hadley Arcus uh, and um, Steve Markman on our side of the argument. I look forward to the, uh, the wit and uh, logic they will deploy this evening. Uh, and, of course, um, the, the, the chairman, Mayor Koch, who will strive his very hardest to be impartial and to abandon all of the opinions he's previously expressed on this lively issue. Um, uh, finally, I would like to, um, to end with the famous story by the late Warden of All Souls, John Sparrow, who used to tell a story of two men who were, um, found themselves in an drift an open boat after the ship they were in was sinking. 
They spent several days of privation. They suddenly uh, saw in the distance uh, land. As they rode ferociously towards it, uh, they suddenly saw uh, a gibbet from which were hanging several corpses. And one of them turned to the other and said, thank God, it's a civilized country. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, at this point, I'm going to be uh, introducing uh, the uh, speakers and doing it uh, one at a time. Uh, and as I told you initially, uh, resolved, the death penalty uh, should be abolished. And the uh, first uh, proponent of that uh, position is uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, the minority rights columnist for The Nation, also writes regularly for Vanity Fair, he is a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, the Washington Post, the New Left Review, and Granta. He is the author of numerous books, most recently, The Missionary Position, a look at Mother Teresa in theory and practice. Hitchens is a frequent guest on Crossfire, Firing Line, and many other television programs. He has uh, been educated at uh, Balliol College in Oxford, and he makes his home in Washington, D.C. Christopher Hitchens. Well, um, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades, Mr. Chairman, thank you for a fulsome, very fulsome introduction. I'm not really sure how I'm going to make this last for 10 minutes, but I believe I can underline at least some of the reasons why this battle, so far from seeming marginal or humanitarian, uh, is very important, essential in fact, to those of us on this side of the House and the argument who have devoted their politics to the fight for a classless society and against the foul hereditary apparatus of absolutism. We frankly, unalterably oppose the practice of human sacrifice. And we even have our doubts about the system that requires it. Let me uh, explain a little what I mean by that. Uh, every one of you by now will have read of the recent human sacrifice that took place in Florida. Actually, it turned rather disagreeably in the uh, eyes and uh, points of view of some liberal commentators into an immolation. It was unpleasant. There was the stench of burning flesh, uh, repulsive to the nose. There was the flash of flame behind the mask, uh, appalling to the eye. Um, Mr. Medina's last few seconds can't be measured exactly, but they don't seem to have been uh, very uh, civilized as a, a means of exiting the society. The flames and the stench, I would say, are more or less routine. I don't want to dwell on them. The, the, the jaunty warders and uh, governors of prisons in Florida have called that machine Old Sparky in their charming way for good reasons for a long time. To show who's in charge. That's why they do it. And I've seen worse myself. If you've ever been to the cyanide chamber in Parchman, Mississippi, you can say you've seen worse. And um, the most remarkable thing about these procedures, including the banalized, medicalized system now being preferred that degrades the medical and physician profession, the worst thing about it actually is how calmly it's received. Uh, in Arkansas the other day they executed three guys at one go. One guy had to lie on a gurney with a drip in his arm for an hour and a half while Clarence Thomas debated whether he should live or die. 
And the statement made by the prison governors afterwards was, well, it's cheaper to do it in batches. It saves the state some money. Also, it saves on stress among the staff. This is what it means to have a therapeutic society. This is also what it means if you give someone like Clarence Thomas the power of life and death. We, on this side of the house, do not grant him that right. And I could stop here. But I won't, okay? There were some other points of interest in Florida. The victim's family said they thought that Pedro Medina was innocent, which uh, there's good reason to think that he was. That will be settled another day. It's too late for him now. His Holiness the Pope intervened asking for clemency. I would consider that a problem for the National Review rather than myself. It's not my business, but it was a point of interest. And the district attorney said in an approval rating seeking statement, well, that'll teach anyone who wants to kill anyone in Florida not to do it here because there appears to be something wrong with our execution apparatus, he said. A considered statement by a district attorney in a state of the union clearly seeking popularity and possibly getting it, for all I know, or care. Because as you probably don't know, uh, Mr. Chairman, there are some politicians who are not good enough to resist the temptation of the opinion poll attitude to human sacrifice, or indeed to the photo op campaign human sacrifice. I, I hope this news does not shock or distress you. The President of these United States, in fact, launched his campaign for that high office by executing a mentally retarded black man named Ricky Ray Rector in Arkansas, a man so deeply lobotomized that he saved his dessert after every dinner. He had a fondness of pecan pie when they came to the cell to take him away because Bill Clinton was having a hard time in New Hampshire. And I say, and I can prove it, for no other reason did they come for him that night. Mr. Rector, as he left the cell, left his pecan pie behind saying he'd save it for later. He didn't know why they'd come, and he helped them to find a place in his arm for the uh, catheter because he thought they were doctors who were trying to cure his condition. A small price to pay, certainly the Clintonoids think, for a presidency of such excellence. And certainly not, not the least such price. And certainly in the scale of the cost of human sacrifice, probably not the foulest. Now, but take that opinion poll execution that I just alluded to. It could be argued that this is actually an argument against the degradation of our public life um, and against postmodern politics, that it shows that it, the, the corruption and rottenness of that, not specifically of the human sacrifice system, sometimes called capital punishment. Well, um, I could take that point on board, I believe. Um, I'm a, for one thing, I'm a great critic of virtual politics. And it's true that some of the arguments on our side are very good, and very sound, and very honest, and very decent, and are made by people who also deserve those adjectives, of whom the Reverend Jackson, whose excellent new book I hope you will buy, is a salient example. But let us agree that there are weaknesses that um, we might be the first to admit. It has been said that this is a racist penalty. You may have heard it said it's a racist penalty. The evidence that it's a racist penalty is overwhelming. All the figures confirm that it is applied in the most abruptly differential way as between black and white people of America and that it is indeed in large parts of the country a legacy of the time when sharp reminders were needed uh, as to who was running the show. Um, but it could equally well be argued that's an objection to racism, not to capital punishment. It could be argued what we need then therefore is not a punishment that is inflicted in a racist way. After all, it can even be said 
This is a racist society, or a society in recovery from racism. Other penalties, too, are applied differentially. Very well. It could be argued, let's have a non-racist application of the human sacrifice principle. Let me just say that equal opportunity human sacrifice would not meet any of the objections we have to human sacrifice on this side of the house. Another argument that is very, very popular at the moment, it gets you onto the New York Times letters page, infallibly I noticed this after Florida again, is to say, but if we kill killers, that makes the state like them. How changing this would be. It's as if there's no moral difference between our government and, and a murderer. Well, excuse me, okay? This is a government and a state that has just admitted to running a training school for torturers, murderers, and death squad conveners all across Central and South America for 25 years. It's a state that runs a thermonuclear economy. It's a state that is the largest exporter of weaponry and, and, the, and the machinery of death globally in the history of any state in the world, and that's quite a long history of violence. My objection, therefore, is this. The state is already too much like a murderer. It's not going to get very much more so by conducting human sacrifice, but we denied the right anyway. It's been said it's capricious. That's true. And there is one, of course, absolutely morally unanswerable uh, case that's been made against it of a pragmatic kind, which is that an innocent person executed is an unbearable thing to think about that the irrevocability of it means that justice can never be done, whereas with all other forms of punishment, even if they've been applied by a racist system that never sentences the rich, uh, nonetheless can be corrected. And of course, less often noticed that if you have executed the innocent, you have by definition liberated the guilty. I mean, it's a double offense, in other words, against all possible norms. Uh, again, by definition, ex hypothesi, in the case of the murder of the innocent in a human sacrifice, the culprit has obviously gone free. So that's two. So that's bad. I don't think there'll ever be a convincing argument against that, but it's too limited. No, the, our argument is this. My argument is this. I should say our argument is this. And we think of it as an irrefragible argument, an irrefutable one. We deny to the state the right to assume the power of life and death over the citizen. In 1981, when Monsieur Robert Badinter was the newly appointed Minister of Justice in France, and moved for the abolition of the guillotine in the French National Assembly, the only good thing the Mitterrand administration ever did, and had a long and very wonderful debate, which you can look up. He argued for it like this, with none of the arguments above. He said, we are opposed to the institution of capital punishment. He called it capital punishment, human sacrifice, because it expresses a fundamentally totalitarian relationship between the citizen and the state. The whole campaign of the Enlightenment the entire progress and conduct of the European bourgeois revolution, if you will, uh, and of the American revolution in its painite form was exactly that, to say to the absolutists, no, the king has no divine right. The church doesn't even have a divine right. The state is a compromise between the government of men and the administration of things. It's an evil compromise. We accept it because things must be administered and, to some extent, men must be governed, but we hope to replace the government of men by the administration of things. In the meantime, the state cannot any longer assume the right of life and death, the power of the high, the middle, and the low. We repudiate it. This is a struggle in which every generation has to take its place and make up its mind. Now, the state may order you to risk your life. It may order you to fight. It may even, many states have, good, my last sentence, may even uh, order you to kill. But it may not order you to die, and we are so fascinated by states that will order death 
the kamikaze, is the counterpart of the worship of the emperor, that we realize the moral and historical sewer of ancestor worship and hierarchy from which this disgusting apparatus has come, and in saying we reject it and repudiate it, we reject also the beastly system of big government opportunistically deployed, which it represents. Thank you. The first speaker in opposition to the resolution is Hadley Parks, a National Review contributing editor, uh, is the Edward Nye Professor of Jurisprudence and American Institutions at Amherst College. He is the author of several books, including First Things and Beyond the Constitution. In addition to writing for National Review, Professor Arcus has a monthly column in Crisis, his work has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Commentary. Professor. This this, is this working? We could raise the money, but it would be wrong. Okay. Everything, just about everything was mispronounced there, but I, I take it in the spirit of friendship. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, Laurence Olivier was recounting a story from Marilyn Monroe complaining about the cuisine being served up by Arthur Miller's mother. And after the third meal in a row with matzo balls, she said, don't they ever eat any other part of the matzo? <laughs> don't charge my time on this, Ed. They're, they're all laughing it out. Okay. Aren't we going to be quit of this subject? This subject will ever be with us. And people who've been in New York know that the question comes to us with a sharper edge in this town, because anyone who's known this town, especially in the 1980s, knows that anyone who ventured out at night was in imminent danger of being accosted in the street by the mayor and asked, how am I doing? I heard Mr. Koch one night in a character, with characteristic modesty say, I'm here to convert you, and I'm here not to convert, but I want to summon the Reverend Jackson back to some older positions of his and to rejoin some older allies, because there's nothing I think he could argue against capital punishment that wouldn't argue even quite as forcefully for the position he used to hold in defending the lives of unborn children. <laughs> Along with his partner, Mr. Hitchens. Now I gather that he's come to accept the right of abortion in its fullest sweep at any time for any reason, even in the case of children who are partially delivered in the case of the grisly partial birth abortions. The Wall Street Journal remarked that even those of us who accept capital punishment wouldn't accept a procedure in which we take the condemned man and crush his skull and suck his brains out. And yet that seems to be the procedure that the Reverend Jackson's friend in Congress are quite willing to accept rather than accept even the slightest restraint on the capacity of people to take life. For people of ordinary wit, it must matter profoundly as to whether we're dealing with innocent life or taking the lives of people who have already taken the lives of others in the most vicious way. And I think it will require some high powers of alliteration 
to explain just why no sanctity at all attaches to the lives of the unborn, while sanctity seems to attach to the lives of the most hardened criminals. But with the unborn, their lives may be taken without the slightest restraint in the law. There's no paradox then for our side to begin with the sense that the taking of life at any age, at any condition, must bear the heaviest burden of justification. We take it that the first responsibility of the law is to protect people from the unjustified taking of their lives. And because of that, we understand that the law may have to deploy or threaten lethal force against those who would suffer no inhibitions on the taking of life. It must be, the state must be in a position to take life. We know it must be able, in a position to do that because it, it can't be unjustified more generally to take life in all instances. There must be a critical distinction between the killing done by a Hitler and the killing done by those who resist being killed unjustly by Hitler. And no perspective that puts those two on the same plane could possibly be called a moral understanding. The case I would make for capital punishment would coincide with Hannah Arendt's final summation on Adolf Eichmann, that you've done something so wrong, so deeply and egregiously wrong, that the, no member of the human race should be expected to share the earth with you. And for that reason, you must hang. That argument can be made by people who reveal no passion to execute and find no particular satisfaction in the building of jails. We can argue as to how widely that the penalty ought to be applied. And for the sake of argument, I would willing to forego, be willing to forego most of the executions in prospect in this country, because it would not touch the main issue in principle, which is, is there ever a case with an Eichmann or a Himmler in which the death penalty could be justified? At a certain point, we'll find ourselves obliged to speak the words of Hannah Arendt for saying anything less would run the risk of diminishing our sense of the depth of the wrong that was done and diminishing in the same measure the sense of the importance of the victims. But if we understand that someone like Eichmann or Himmler deserves to die in capital punishment, nothing in their wrongs would be attenuated in any way by the demonstration that somewhere else in the country or the world there's been racial unevenness in the application of the penalty. That's a distinct wrong that deserves to be rejected, but it could not possibly offset the wrongs done by a Himmler or an Eichmann. If these people merit that punishment, they would still merit it. We have here a kind of version of that old problem of the, the old Skinner case, where the legislature of Oklahoma sort of stipulated that certain punish forms of criminality were genetically transmissible that chicken thieving fell among them. And Mr. Justice Douglas, with a sweep of equal protection, said that this law visits his punishment, sterilizes the chicken thieves, but not the embezzlers who have stolen far more. And Chief Justice Stone, God bless him, said, I don't think the defects of this legislation would be cleared if the legislature, with a proper sense of symmetry, went on to the sterilization of the embezzlers as well as the chicken thieves. If the problem is that more blacks than whites are being executed, that problem is dissolved, as Mr. Hitchens said, if we merely execute more whites. As a moral argument, it is utterly empty, and it cannot reach the question of substance. That question has to be faced directly, and it is not faced in the so-called deterrence theories of capital punishment, because there we're asked to consider executing people, killing them out of a speculation that we might discourage other people from murdering, as yet unknown, as yet unvictimized people. The life of that victim as yet unknown is apparently thought to justify the taking of the life of the criminal. 
whereas the life of the real victim is not. Our argument is that capital punishment can be justified only as a form of retribution to vindicate the wrongs done to the real victims, not speculative victims. Capital punishment can be justified only as a punishment that is measured in the scale of things to the acts of killing themselves, to acts of killing that are not accidental, but deliberate, vicious, confirming a disposition that could only be described as evil. At the same time, I, I must say, we would have to install the most implausible human psychology to suppose that human beings are utterly indifferent to punishments and that a policy of capital punishment will not affect some people at the margins. But when we scale down the sense of the wrong, of the punishment, we scale down the sense of the wrong and the victims. And this was borne home to me by a woman, black woman I met about 20 years ago in Detroit. The night I was having dinner with her, she recalled that about a year before, she had seen from her high-rise apartment her own husband knifed in the street. And the young man who had done that was that day, a year later, getting out of jail. And she said, that is what the life of my husband was worth. One year. It's worth more than a year. Could it be worth life in prison? With access to a good library, a Nautilus room, and cable television? Could it be worth taking the life? of the killer. In the presence of a real evil, in the presence of a Himmler or Eichmann, it cannot be out of scale to say with Hannah Arendt, we simply cannot share the earth with you. I want to suggest to you that if we can't summon at least that kind of conviction, we run the imminent risk of sliding into a subtle diminishing of the victim. And I wonder, I beg you to consider whether we not have the evidence before us. There's a telling test, measured in the things we are willing to laugh about. Nowhere on late night television will you hear jokes about the Holocaust or concentration camps. Mel Brooks will come the closest with springtime for Hitler. And Woody Allen will say that his wife made a dish called Chicken Himmler. That comes near the edge, but no jokes about the victims or the camps. In contrast, Jay Leno and other comedians for a year made jokes every night about the trial involving the killing of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Yet if we can laugh about this trial but not about the Holocaust, isn't the measure clear? We have respect for the victims of the Holocaust, but the deaths of Nicole Simpson and Ron Goldman are things we can laugh about. But how are their deaths laughable in that the way that the deaths of the victims of the Holocaust are not unless it means that their deaths are not in the scale of things as important as the deaths of people in the Holocaust. My pitch to you is this, to insist on retaining capital punishment, to summon the conviction to retain it, is to insist on beginning every case with the assumption that these deaths are as important as the deaths of those grandparents, brothers and sisters who perished in the Holocaust, and our aunts and uncles, very original, that these deaths, I insist to you again, we insist are as important as the deaths of those who perished in the Holocaust, and these are in fact, these recent victims are in fact, our brothers and sisters.
Our second speaker, a proponent of the uh, resolution, is the Reverend uh, Jesse Lewis uh, Jackson, president and founder of the Rainbow Push Coalition. He is one of America's he is one of America's foremost political figures. Over the past 30 years, he has played a pivotal role in virtually every movement for empowerment and peace and civil rights and gender equality and economic and social justice. With his son, Jesse Jackson, Jr., he has recently co-authored the book Legal Lynching, which is about the death penalty. Reverend Jackson's two presidential campaigns broke new ground in U.S. politics. His 1984 campaign won 3.5 million votes, registered over a million new voters, and helped the Democratic Party regain control of the Senate in 1986. His 1988 candidacy won 7 million votes, registered 2 million new voters, and helped to sweep hundreds of elected officials into office. His clear progressive agenda and his ability to build an unprecedented coalition inspired millions to join the political process. Reverend Jesse Jackson. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor Koch, for that intro, for that to endorsement. Thank you. <laughs> Give him a hand, will you please? Nineteen ninety four, I quote from a book, um, Legal Lynching. Racism, Injustice, and the Death Penalty, quoted by Congressman Jackson and I. Justice Blackmun wrote the following, From this day forward, I will no longer tinker with the machinery of death. For more than 20 years, I have endeavored, indeed I have struggled, along with the majority of this court, to develop procedural and substantive rules that would lend more than mere appearances of fairness to death penalty endeavor, rather than continue to coddle the court's delusion that the desired level of fairness has been achieved and the need for regulation eviscerated, I feel morally and intellectually obligated simply to concede that the death penalty experiment has failed. Blackman explained that it had become evident to him that no combination of rules or regulations would ever save the death penalty from its inherent weaknesses. The basic question he raised was, does the system accurately and consistently determine which defendants deserve to die? Firm and unequivocally, Blackman answered, no. Killers are wrong, whether passionate, dispassionate, panic-ridden, for hire, or sick. The state must not, to an act of premeditation, extend the line of killing, but rather break the cycle. I do not believe the state has the moral authority to kill, and each time it kills, it spreads the idea of revenge as the basis for killing and retaliation, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as acceptable. Recycling violence will leave us blind, disfigured, and dead. The state ethic 
must not be the same as the street ethic. I'm glad District Attorney Robert Johnson from the Bronx, District Attorney Robert Morgenthau from Manhattan share this view of life and the state. The death penalty is revenge. It is not deterrence. Dr. King would not want James Earl Ray killed, and neither do I, though I'm convinced he killed Dr. King. The U.S. stands alone of Western democracies. Israel, even with the killing of Reben, would not be freed from its position against capital punishment. South Africa has broken the cycle. Now we stand as co-partners with China as their moral equivalent on this matter of killing. Thus, our ability to challenge them to human rights is weakened. Legal representation and money are factors in who lives and who dies. Whether O.J. Simpson or John DuPont, the first deal cut, even if found guilty, they will not die. As Bujamal argues, them with capital don't get the punishment. Susan Smith killed two babies drove them into the river, said a black man did it. He was an imaginary black man. If he had existed, he would have died. She got life, time without parole. A few months later, a retarded 18-year-old black, over the pleas of his white mother, was put to death. 25,000 murders a year, 25 execution, who dies? To many of the prosecutors, it's, it's a political versus a moral choice. When the government kills, we are all executioners. In the killing machinery, race is a factor. Wealth or poverty, a factor. Female, a factor. Jury selection, a factor. Geography, a factor. Now, shorter time reduces due process. If it's white on black, less time. Black on white, more likely to die. Black on black, a shrug of the shoulders. Three standards. We should not sanction the idea of killing as a solution. The recent roasting of a man in Florida was an abomination. We just finished celebrating the Easter season. Jesus was killed as an act of capital punishment by the state. The politicians sacrificed him for crowd favor. The Poles soared as Pilate washed his hands. In Rome, the innocent and the guilty were killed at the same time because in their bloodshot, politically driven eyes, it did not matter. They had solved their problem. The crowd cried for blood. It became a sport. The governors who really believe in capital punishment to be seen on live television pulling the switch 
and looking at a killer. They should not wash their hands and assign this crime of humanity to somebody else. Capital killing leaves no margin for error. It's final. Voltaire said it is better to risk saving a guilty person than risk killing an innocent one. It's really wrong when the state sprays bullets and kills the innocent or the guilty because it's in a hurry. We must search 2,000 years after Rome, 2,000 years after Calvary. We must search for a higher ethic, a more sane punishment. Life without parole, solution that's consistent with a higher ethic, a higher morality, and the growth of civilized behavior. Thank you. Our final speaker in opposition to the resolution is Judge Stephen J. Markman, who was a National Review contributing editor until his appointment to the Michigan Court of Appeals. An expert on the federal judicial selection process and criminal law, Judge Markman was Assistant Attorney General of the United States from 1985 to 1989 and was the United States Attorney in Michigan from 1989 1993. He was also the Deputy Chief Counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee for seven years before working for the Justice Department. He has authored numerous scholarly articles for the Stanford Law Review, the University of Chicago Law Review, the American Criminal Justice Law Review, and Harper's Magazine. Judge Stephen Markman. Thank you very much, Mayor Koch. I appreciate that introduction much better than one I received when I left the prosecutor's office when I was introduced to somebody who was one of the finest prosecutors that money could buy. I know that the person intended to say something nice about me, but I'm not sure they succeeded. My wife, who was on the dais at the same time, was introduced as one of the finest ladies to walk the streets. And I'm sure she felt much the same way. I find the mindset of my distinguished colleagues on the other side of this debate to be quite remarkable. Thanks in part to the adoption of the constitutional and social values endorsed by their journal of opinion for the past two generations, we have, I would submit, in place today a seriously weakened criminal justice system, one that was utterly redefined by the judicial decisions of the 1960s. And partially as a result of these decisions, we now suffer rates of violent crime in this country four and five times higher than that in 1960 in most violent, rate, violent crime categories. These current levels of crime, in other words, have not always been with us. Within the memory of most adult Americans, such levels were a fraction of what they are today. The seven million violent crimes committed each year including the 25,000 homicides, as well as the additional 26 million burglaries and larcenies, 
which at any moment threaten to erupt into a violent crime, are unprecedented in our nation's history and unequaled among developed nations. Yet, in the face of this brutality, one which affects every aspect of the lives of those in our inner cities, affects where people work, where people play, where they shop, where they educate their children, whether they can sit on the front porch after dark, whether they, go, can, they can go to the park, whether they have a job. My colleagues propose to assure that the predator class among us need not ever worry about being subject to the punishment which they fear the most. It is too barbaric, we are told. What a wonderfully discriminating sense of barbarism. As for me, I would rather opt for the barbarism of the killer who cut up the woman and stole her fetus from her in Chicago and then shot the two squealing children in the room next to her. That kind of barbarism trumps the barbarism of the death penalty. The first function of government is not a turkey in every pot or food stamps in every mailbox. It's protection of decent society from those very few who are evil among us. When your typical garden variety homicide today is on page C6 of your average urban newspaper, if even given that much attention, you've got a pretty good indicator I would submit that government is not performing its primary function very well. First of all, let me say that the arguments raised by my colleagues on the other side of this debate are purely distractions. Whether the concern which they voice is the deterrent impact of the death penalty, racial disparities in the process, the possibility of mistake or the inadequacy of procedures, in truth, none of this is determinative to them since they would, I believe, oppose a death penalty under any circumstances. Their concerns really do remind me of the federal judge several years ago who objected to an execution because the solution for the lethal injection had not been approved of by the Food and Drug Administration for its purpose. Now, even if it were to be demonstrated beyond a scintilla of a doubt that each execution deterred 100 killings, I would presume that they would continue to oppose the death penalty. If I am wrong, I would invite them to correct me. Is this the superior moral ethic of, our, of my colleagues? Better to allow 100 innocents to die than it is to execute one depraved murderer. But that, of course, is unfair. Since there are no serious studies sh that show much more than 20 or so killings deterred by each execution, the question is better to allow 20 or so innocents to die than it is to execute one depraved murderer. Of course, it is true that we don't know beyond a reasonable doubt whether the death penalty deters at all. There are just too many factors to take into account. On the other hand, we don't know whether or not an eight-year sentence of imprisonment deters more than a seven-year sentence of imprisonment. There have been no studies on that subject. We assume that it does since our criminal justice system is predicated upon the view that more severe sentences not only punish more, but also deter more. But we don't know for sure, and I have to admit there are social science studies that are all over the ballpark. I think the death penalty deters. Christopher Hitchens and Reverend Jackson thinks that it does not deter. Now consider the relative risks. If we continue to impose the death penalty, my preferred course of action, and I am wrong, then what is the harm that is done? 
The harm that is done is that a murderer has been executed even though no one else has been deterred from killing by virtue of his execution. However, if we follow the prescription of my colleagues and we abolish the death penalty and they are wrong, then what is the harm? Then the harm is that some number of innocent people have been killed by others who would have been deterred had the death penalty not been abolished. These are the respective risks. And in balancing these respective risks, I will gladly err on the side of protecting innocent human life rather than the life of the murderer. Further, given that my colleagues manifestly view capital punishment as the most egregious form of punishment, why shouldn't we assume that criminals also feel the same way and at least occasionally are discouraged from committing a crime for fear of such punishment? I would suggest that the better studies on capital punishment show that there may be as many as 175,000 deaths that have been deterred by virtue of, the capital, of capital punishment since the beginning of the century. And that figure needs to be placed on the balance scale when we weigh this issue. Let me also say with respect to deterrence that the rate of homicides, as I've mentioned in this country, has soared four to five times above what it was in the early 1960s or about the time that the judicial branch decided to effectively abolish the death penalty in the United States. Now let me say that there are a variety of factors which probably account for this trend. Nevertheless, I find it remarkable that the death penalty abolitionists are so cocksure that the death penalty has no deterrent value. Given the tragic growth in the United States and the number of homicides, particularly stranger homicides, during the very period in which the death penalty has ceased to be a realistic part of our criminal justice system, I would think at the least that the abolitionist would exercise a bit more humility in making arg arguments about its lack of deterrent value. But at the very least, I would place the risk of deterrence not upon the innocent individual, but upon the person who has taken human life and shown his disdain for that life. It's a very selective sense of brutality that my colleagues have here. In 1996, many of you may recall a story about a New Jersey school teacher, Kathleen Weinstein, who was carjacked and killed. Thanks to a tape, recording that she, a tape recorder that she was carrying, we have for posterity a 24-minute tape of Kathleen Weinstein pleading for her life with her captor. She made an effort to befriend her tormentor. She made an effort to understand what was going on in his mind. She made an effort to reason with him. She appealed to his logic and she appealed to his heart. All of this was in vain as Kathleen Weinstein was killed for her car and her husband and son today are left without a wife and a mother. My purpose in mentioning this crime is not because it was a remarkable crime, but precisely because it was so unremarkable, except for the tape recording. The agony that Kathleen Weinstein went through and that emerges from the tape is hardly different, I would suggest, from the agony suffered by virtually all victims of stranger murders. The fact that their agonies have not been preserved like those of Kathleen Weinstein does not make them any less real. The legacy of Kathleen Weinstein's tape recording is simply the reality, the garden variety reality of your typical first degree stranger murder occurring some 10,000 times every year in this country. Although we are spared in that tape the final cries and screams of Ms. Weinstein.
They pretty much all sound the same. My colleagues would punish Ms. Weinstein's murderer by imposing a sanction slightly more severe than exists in most states for the carjacking alone. The murder was pretty much of a freebie. While Reverend Jackson talks about life without parole in his book, he is clearly far more enthusiastic, having read it, about parole after 25 years. In other words, a 25-year sentence. And after that, and during that point, the killer can be paying the, the family of the Weinstein stipends for each year, something I'm sure they'll appreciate greatly. I, and I believe most other Americans, believe that Kathleen Weinstein's murderer has earned the right to die. By the death penalty, the community makes clear that it has no interest in ever reconciling itself with Kathleen Weinstein's murderer. A few points I'd like to respond to more specifically with respect to the um, alleged burning of Mr. Medina in Florida. He suffered no pain. Injection is considered to be the most, uh, I'm sorry, electrocution is considered to be the most humane form of capital punishment. And to use that as an argument against the death penalty is the same way as arguing that a fire in a cell house is an argument against incarceration. It's a tragedy but it doesn't argue against the punishment. Each side will now have a total, each side a total, of five minutes for rebuttal, and we will start with uh, the nation, the affirmative uh, of the resolution, and are you going to divide it, or we will? We will. Uh, okay. Uh, the speak, me, um, the uh, timekeeper will just keep running up until five minutes, so within uh, your own discretion, you'll decide when to turn it over. Uh, Mr. Kitchen. Very well. Um, no one wants to coddle this fashion of panic, of a hire, or for sick. No one wants to coddle kittles. Much of the killing that takes place uh, takes place in spite of the fact that the laws are on the books because those who are barbaric and sick don't think the process through. Death penalty didn't stop Stuart from shooting his pregnant wife. The abdomen in Boston didn't stop Susan Smith from driving her two babies in the river in South Carolina. Didn't stop the three boys in Chicago last week from attempting to kill a young youth. Um, uh, and so there is no evidence of deterrence. Last night, it seems, a policeman here executed a young black in the back, didn't stop him. And so these circumstances suggest that just the threat of, of capital punishment is not enough. I would make the case that if we end easy access to guns, and stop glorifying murder as a solution on TV, um, that we begin to move toward creating within our society a new sense of humanity and new values. Our youth by age 15 have seen 18,000 hours of television. They've seen almost a half million problems resolved with murder. They think that revenge and retaliation is acceptable. It's wrong, and the state should not affirm their degeneracy.
My dear. Excuse me. Um, I'm sorry. Um, I was lost in contemplation of what you said. Um, well, it's a bit depressing since I'd taken so much care to say that I don't think that the method of execution is an argument against capital punishment to be taken up on it even in a strangulated um, end note from the holder of the electric chair of jurisprudence or whatever the hell it turns out to be. If you want simply to get up and make a a salad of stories about people who've behaved with a depraved indifference to human rights and human life, excuse me, a depraved indifference, a shocking, uh, horrifying indifference, then, then I don't believe that um, either the Reverend or myself could be far behind you in postulating such cases. In the case example for the, uh, of the Chicago dismembering to which we retreated, I think a case may have been being made for, um, but I think at least it can be said, as so often in arguments with the National Review, inadvertently, um, the case they're being made might, for all I know, be a case for the execution of the insane. I don't know whether or not you have a view about the execution of the insane, but certainly in many cases of pornographic depravity uh, and indifference to human life, that's what you're up against. I didn't hear you say whether you felt the insane should be executed or not. You admit that the calculus of deterrence is impossible. You're right there. Um, in attempting to express society's disapproval via the state in this way, you'd have to, I think, add very largely to the number of capital offences, horrific rapes, for example, that don't actually take life. Um, you'd have to try and think about how to execute people preemptively, how to pick out the people likely to kill or kill again, do that. And you'd have to very substantially lower the age at which the state could send someone to the chair or the gas chamber or the guillotine. Now, of course, in the societies, of Western and uh, Southern Europe, where this penalty was until recently enforced, all, all those things did happen all the time. They did execute children, they did execute the insane, they did execute people preemptively, and, um, and they vastly increased the number of offences for which someone could be executed. And it was the very confrontation with that diminishing return, with the complete non sequitur of capital punishment as an answer to murder, with the dysfunctional, the, sorry, the, the disconnection between the problem of depravity and murder and the supposed solution, that all these societies disencumbered themselves. These were not sentimental countries either. Portugal and Spain are not sentimental countries when it comes to violence. Germany doesn't do it. Hungary doesn't do it. Even, even the, the British, for whom it attained something like the status of a national fetish, finally were able to break themselves of the habit. Um, why is it that in these United States, now, I think I know why the Conservatives, who always know when and when not to oppose big government, the reason they behave like this, I conclude, is that their attachment to this fetish is deep-rooted in a way they didn't quite succeed in justifying to us. It means something to them in the preservation of their authority, and it gives me an additional reason for wishing to see them stripped of it. Thank you. Thank you. We now, we now uh, turn to the National Review and the two speakers, uh, Stephen Markman uh, and uh, Hadley Arcus. Uh, and you have a total of five minutes between you to choose as you will. I'll just, I'll take the lead. I, is this on? It's on. Go ahead. 
Okay, I just couldn't, I couldn't quite pick up everything over there. I think the accent was throwing me. I think he said the cheesemaker shall inherit the earth or something like that. Uh, well, Don Rickles, professor of journalism, uh, was, was certainly unloaded. But I think that, that this is almost like, like debating the Tonight Show, that uh, I don't think our colleagues really meant to encounter us or to address the kinds of arguments that we were raising, and it, it doesn't sound like the world that the rest of us inhabit. Let me just go back for a moment. In the days of Cicero, in Rome, there were no police. People carry, had bodyguards. We took it as a moral evolution to bring ourselves to the point of saying that the right of, a, of an infirm person, an older person, to be protected in the street would not depend on her capacity to summon physical force against the aggressors. It was a mark of some evolution to vest in the community the authority to deploy on behalf of the weak the, the, the force that the weak would be justified in deploying on their own. Am I to take it from the Reverend Jackson that the state may not deploy that kind of force for the sake of protecting the weak? That it could not deploy that kind of force in resisting uh, uh, the Axis in the Second World War or defending American interests in the world? But we, we, but we talk about the, the state and the power of the state, I just have to remind you that there was another part of that concern about creating authority on the part of the state to deploy force, and that went hand in hand with the withdrawal of private right to violence for private reasons. Now, again, the, the, the Reverend just very nicely sidesteps the point I was making, but we have this curious situation. While he thinks it's deeply wrong for the state to take life, he would apparently acquiesce in this policy of creating a private right to use violence and to take lives for reasons that need not rise above convenience with 1.3 million abortions each year. Did, did, did you mean boo in the negative sense? <laughs> well, I have yet to hear quite the explanation because on this matter of partial birth abortion, I don't think the Reverend is suffering any strain that, 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 there's, that the child partially delivered is in the human species. And we still have to understand what, what reasons allow us to take that life for any reason at all and never to touch the life of the most hardened, vicious criminal. Well, as we'll wait, we'll see if there's an answer. But I guess, as a former colleague of mine used to say, we may discover that we have principles we haven't even used yet. I guess I would repeat my question to my distinguished colleagues on the other side, and that is, if it were proven beyond a purview of doubt that each execution deterred 20, 10, 5, 1, 100 murders, would that make any difference whatsoever to you? With respect to Reverend Jackson's suggestion that this is a racist penalty, and this is also a theme that runs through his book, which I did find a very interesting and in many respects a thoughtful book, I would point out a few statistics. Number one, since the death penalty was reinstituted, 47% of all murderers in the United States have been committed by blacks, 38% by whites. 
Notwithstanding that fact, 56% of all those executed have been whites and 38% blacks. Whites are executed on average 15 months earlier than our blacks. 12 out of every 1,000 blacks who commit murders are administered the death penalty, 16 out of every 1,000 whites. The statistics go on and on and on. One can legitimately argue against the death penalty, but to suggest that there's any evidence whatsoever to support the idea that the death penalty is administered in a racist way is just absent. The more sophisticated argument raised by my distinguished colleagues is that, no, it's not the race of the killer that makes a difference because the statistics are, as I've just suggested, but it's the race of the victim. And they point to statistics showing that a disproportionate number of capital penalty cases involve white victims. This results from another statistical factor, however, which they also gloss over, and that is the fact that uh, blacks commit approximately eight times as many murders of whites as whites commit of blacks, and there are 24 times as many interracial murders committed by blacks as by whites. And when you're talking about that kind of black and white or white on black murder, the stranger murder, those tend to be the kind of murders that are most susceptible to capital punishment. Thank you. Good. Now, uh, we're going to take a 10-minute uh, uh, intermission, and then uh, when we come back, uh, there will be a um, half hour of uh, allotted uh, to questions uh, from uh, the uh, audience. And I bid you uh, to come back as quickly as you can. Thank you. In a moment, uh, I will, using the prerogative of the uh, moderator as we've established over the two sessions that we've had, I'm going to ask each side a uh, question. Uh, they'll decide who will answer on behalf of the team, and then we'll go uh, to the audience. And uh, the audience uh, will be recognized alternatively. To my right uh, are those uh, who support out in the audience uh, uh, the resolution, uh, the death penalty uh, should be abolished, and to my left of the aisle here are uh, the opponents of uh, the resolution, and I will uh, alternate. Uh, it's important to know that uh, you are asked to please not make a speech. This is not to get your point of view, it's to get the point of view of the four people who are sitting here. So. Do please uh, ask a question, and uh, if I find uh, that uh, for whatever reasons you're not able to do that, I'll go on to the next uh, questioner. And just don't get angry. No. Because it won't help. No. Uh, my first question is uh, for the opponents here on my left. 
Assuming for the purposes of discussion that no matter how meticulous the prosecution in a death penalty case may be, there will be the unintended execution of an innocent person. Does the unavoidability of such an innocent death cause you to doubt your position in support of the death penalty? And if not, why not? Well, I guess I lose. Uh, Mayor Koch, this is clearly the strongest arguments against the death penalty that despite uh, all the procedures and all the due process that can be introduced, it is ultimately a human system and there is the possibility of error in that system. Uh, Please. Although there is no clear evidence that in fact there has been that erroneous execution in this century, and there have been studies attempting to demonstrate that, there's no clear evidence that there's been such an execution. I think we have to assume that it's possible. And I think the argument against that is that ultimately there are many things that we do in society that carry that kind of tragic possibility. We have surgery, we have medicines, we have traffic, we have construction, we have um, toxic levels that we allow. Each of these institutions ultimately leads to the death of innocence in some statistically certain number of circumstances. I think we have to look at this as a system that ultimately saves many more lives than the inadvertent life that is occasionally tragically lost in this system. For every innocent that's executed, and again, we don't have any idea how many that is, but for every innocent that's executed, I would suggest that there are many more innocent lives that will be lost through the alternative. Even life with parole, we've lost many more lives as a result of escapees and prisoners killing other prisoners and prisoners killing guards. So there's, there's no perfect system, but I would suggest we've lost many more lives as a result of prisoners escaping and killing others. But the larger argument, of course, is that we save thousands and thousands of lives, I would suggest, through the deterrent element of capital punishment. And that would, of course, totally be lost if we were to abolish the death penalty. Thank you. Now I turn uh, to uh, those who support the proposition the death penalty uh, should be abolished. Assuming, for the purposes of discussion, that there are depraved individuals, including serial murderers who will kill additional innocent victims upon release from prison after serving their terms, or will kill correction officers or other prisoners while in prison, won't you agree that imposing the death penalty in particularly egregious cases will save other innocent people from being murdered? People who are that sick, for them death has no sting. Some of them beg to die. They beg to bring the state down to the level of sickness. And we should not, we should not submit. If they can be put in a, uh, a cage or a cell alone and never again have human contact. So I believe that they should be given life without the possibility of a parole. If I might just take a liberty for a minute, because I've been tested with this question. Late-term abortions without a medical basis is morally wrong. 
without medical extenuating circumstances morally wrong. I happen to believe that sex education and sex discipline and abstinence and love on the front side and the promise of future security on the back side is the way of reducing abortions. But ultimately, it is a woman's choice and she must live and she must live and she must live with the consequences of her choice. There's some of the same people who fight with fervor for the fetus, won't fight for prenatal care and head start and daycare and equal funding once the child is born. We deny we're basically talking about state executions, not that private choice. And so to go there is to suggest you have no place else to go. Okay. Now, uh, would, would you raise uh, the light so that uh, the entire audience uh, uh, is visible, please? Could, could you do that backstage? In the meanwhile, uh, we will uh, now start the uh, questions, and uh, we'll start on the right. Uh, just uh, state your name, that's all. My name is Todd Gitlin. I have listened carefully to the views of the national reviewers. Their views seem to me a compound of arguments from deterrence and arguments about moral vengeance or vengeance. I have not heard an argument on their side, on your side, that would not, could not also be made of torture. Torture might indeed deter. Okay. Torture might we be a legitimate way right. we understand the question. to exercise vengeance. We understand it. Sir. I'm stating the question, sir. Mr. Mayor. Yes, go ahead. Number but, one, but, yeah. do you in fact defend the right of torture as you would defend the death penalty? And if not, why not? Okay. Uh, no, no, I don't. This. Um... Oh, I'm, I'm grateful for some reaction. Uh, apparently you weren't listening to, the, didn't get the argument I, I was making. I was making an argument in principle to, to for retribution. To that not, not, I, this, everything I'm making here is still quite consistent with the principle I take to be represented or reflected in the Eighth Amendment, that we don't use punishments out of scale. We don't, we don't give people capital punishment for library books overdue, and we don't engage in gratuitous... Killing. Now, I, I, this, this, the scheme that I put forth could have been satisfied with a scheme in which you simply allow people to take the hemlock and administer it to themselves. You could even force people to watch on, for days on end reruns of Peter Jennings in the evening news. And nothing implicit in this arrangement requires anything particularly grisly. On my left. Claire O'Brien, and I think I'm standing at the wrong mic, but I'm going to ask my question anyway. Wait a minute. Uh, no, 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 no. Then you get over there. <laughs> That's not no, fair. No, no, no. Next, please. No. Next. Uh, point of order, know, Mr. Mayor. If, if, no, if you can. You didn't announce, no, it, you didn't announce no, it beforehand. No, if you can. If you can, can I jump to the head of the line? If you can convince them can to I give you a place uh, in their line. 
uh, at the front. Uh, wonderful. Next. Uh, well, I'm guilty of the same mistake. I, I was going to do the same. Well, then you'll just have to go over. Okay? Yes. Uh, Mr. Hitchens, this question is directed at you. You spoke of human sacrifice uh, to murderous villains. Can you talk about human sacrifice that's happening on the streets all over this country to innocents? Um, I, think I, I think I'm aware of the distinction. Uh, between a state-sponsored immolation and a collision of violence involving citizens, if that's what you are trying to elucidate. I'm trying, I'm trying to determine that if it does... I mean, in other words, a person who inflicts random cruelty or violence upon another in the street is not conducting a human sacrifice. He's expressing um, the fact that we're an animal species with prefrontal lobes rather too small, of which is ample evidence, and adrenaline glands rather too big, evidence no less convincing. Okay. There's Unfortunately, this undoes the argument from design on which so much of the National Review's argument should depend. Thank you for clearing okay. that, that up. Next, please. Good evening. My name is Debbie. Uh, Mr. Markman, the, la uh, the woman, God rest her soul, of whom you spoke so eloquently, Kathleen Weinstein, was it Weinstein? How was she murdered, sir? You talked about the time before she was murdered, but how was she murdered? Wasn't she strangled? I, okay. I thought she was murdered. I thought she was shot. Um, Mr. Arquez? There, there, there may be somebody in the audience who has better recollection okay. of the details than I do. Mr. Arquez, you spoke about 25,000 murders. Uh, look. Uh, you can do that, but that's the end of the question. You have uh, only one question, and you're getting two by okay. error. Okay. Uh, fine. He didn't know the answer. Now, may I ask Mr. Arquez a question? Now, <laughs> it doesn't make any difference whether he knows the answer or not, but ask your question, and it's okay. only one Mr. question. Mr. Arquez, you spoke of 25,000 murders in this country. How were the majority of those committed? You don't know. You must have the wrong Okay, argument. that's the end of that. Next. <laughs> My question, no, sir, no. Is do you next. believe in gun control? No. Next. I'd like to know you, you had your chance. Next, sir. Uh, again, for Mr. Hitchens, I was intrigued by your paraphrase of the French justice minister to conclude your argument, which was that the state has no absolutist right to take a life. And despite my favor of the death penalty, I'm inclined to agree with you. However, in the United States, such decisions are not made by judges, but by uh, juries, which include 12 representatives of the people. One, question one would be, does that change your mind at all, the decisions made by people? And two, related to that, if we can't trust people with such weighty decisions, how can we trust them to make any decision and impose any punishment on people for such minor crimes as robbery or civil offenses? No, I prefer... I must say I prefer questions about single standard to double, but I'll do my best. I mean, the... The, uh, the capital punishment system is not carried out by, the, by juries. The capital punishment system uh, is something to which a jury may be asked to give its attention. I'm simply saying it's an option the jury should not be given. Is there some... I have a feeling I, as if I've trodden on the place where the last stair ought to be. No, the juries make a decision whether a person lives or dies. I mean, if the prosecutor has sought the death penalty, yes, that's the case. But, I mean, a lot must happen before a jury gets that option. And as a matter of fact, uh, it might, might be of interest to you to know that in my country of birth, the United Kingdom, one of the reasons for the abolition of capital punishment, given pragmatically by the Lord Chancellor of the day, was that um, 
many juries were so horrified by the capital punishment system that they would not convict people who they thought to be guilty of murder. In other words, it's another example of the diminishing returns of this foul and arbitrary idea. I think two Please? points. I'm sorry. But, but I, I, think, if, I think the two sure. points. One, in the case of O.J., for example, and uh, DuPont, the first deal cut by the prosecutor was even if found guilty, they would not face the chair. That's just wealth and politics. That's not ethics. That's wealth. So if you are, have money and competent counsel and guilty, you are less likely to die if you are poor without come to counsel and innocent. That is the extremes of this system. And the other point is that in many cases when the death penalty is the option, then the judge will not allow that case to be made for the jury, so the jury will not make that decision. That's how much tension there is about that question in the jury box, in the courtroom. Yeah. Um, I deferred uh, to uh, Reverend Jackson because it is Reverend Jackson. But uh, we, what we want to do is to have as many questions as possible so there only will be one answer from the table for each question. Yes, sir. Okay, please. My name is Claire O'Brien, again. I represent George McFarlane, a black man on death row in Texas, whose principal lawyer slept through the direct examination of prosecution witnesses and then awoke to cross-examine them. What do either Mr. Arcus or Markman suggest we do about the inadequate representation of many defendants in death penalty cases? The case you mentioned was adequate, as adequately covered by Justice Sutherland's opinion in the old Scottsboro case. And since we have the presence of counsel who are less than diligent or even incompetent, no one doubts that we're in a position to have a review. The figures I've seen, someone asked me about figures, the figures I've seen is that since 1970, from 1976 to 93, there are about 400,000 murders in this country. There have been 226 executions in that same period. It doesn't indicate a kind of a, an overpowering passion to execute. But um, what we also find is that of the people executed last year, I think there were 56, these, the stay on death row has been about 11 years. And from what we've seen in reading the records, it looks as though these people with habeas corpus petitions has had, have had, as we would say, as much process as could possibly be due them. But there would be no novel problem here. To the extent that one could ever raise a question of that kind, you always have a ground for an appeal. Do I hear you? No, no, there's no uh, continuing dialogue. Next. My name is Peter Stone. Reverend Jackson seems to imply that the disproportionate number of blacks among the prison population and among uh, those facing capital punishment has a very strong racist component. Uh, taking that logic, uh, would the Reverend also feel that the disproportionate number of males in the prison population, about 85%, has to do with an anti-male bias and nothing to do with guilt or innocence? Well, I'm not sure of the ratio, but I do know this. The blacks are 12% of the population and 55% of the jail population. Let's look at that picture. 
85% of all rural arrests are white. 74% of all the urban arrests are white. 55% of all of them in jail are black. Those who have least competent counsel and are targeted tend to stay in jail for the least amount of crime. I got a young man out of jail along with Bishop Owens in Memphis this, this past week who had been in jail uh, since January 17th. A, uh, an offense was in the car, in a stolen car, trying to get some and stole some groceries. He had not been up for a bail hearing in four months, did not know what his bond was. But the cost of $50 a day for four months, we got him out for $125. He was just thrown away. Put it another way. If you're caught with five grams of crack cocaine, five sweet and low sugar bags, five years mandatory, 500 grams of powder from which crack comes, you get probation. The source gets probation, the victim gets five years. Or $45,000 worth of marijuana, five years, Preferred drug of choice on campuses, $8,000 worth of powder, five years, $29 worth of crack, five years. And so the U.S. Sentencing Commission says that is racism and disparity in the sentencing process. So that's not personal, that is the scientific data from the Justice Department. I'm going to say this in conclusion. It is so evident to me that when uh, uh, last week, these three young white boys beat a young black kid nearly to death. The city was all excited and pained about it, and rightfully so. If it's white on black, blacks react. If it's black on white, whites react. If it's black on black, there's a kind of cheapening of our lives with a shrug of shoulders. I say nobody has a right to kill anybody. Let the ethic transcend the color factor. And the reason why you only have 25 executions out of 25,000 is that by and large, the, the, uh, the ethnic killings, the poverty-driven, drug-driven killings tend not to get capital punishment. They get the short term. You didn't answer my question at all. No, that's sorry. all right. He answered it to his satisfaction, and that's the end of it. Next. Oh. Okay, my name is Tom Pauper, and this is for uh, Judge Markman and his colleague. Uh, something to do with the last question, though, and purely unintentional, because I, I couldn't know what kind of questions are being uh, asked. Judge Markman, uh, and your colleague can ask this too, knowing as you do that the great majority of people put to death or sentenced to death in this country, almost everyone that's put to death or sentenced to death in this country, are black, Hispanic, or poor whites. Knowing this as you do, how can you possibly save the death penalty when practically the only people who will be executed or sentenced to death will be those blacks, Hispanics, or poor whites? Okay. Sir. Well, I thought I'd made the point, apparently not very articulately, that in fact the uh, evidence is inconsistent with the premises of your question. And 56% 50, of the individuals who've been executed since the restoration of capital punishment in 1977 are in fact white, a disproportionately high percentage. With respect to the racial argument further, let me say I'm not very impressed one way or the other with st the statistics except to refute the premise of your question. Equality is one thing, justice is another thing. Justice doesn't involve letting this burglar go because some other burglar has gone. If in fact there is any disparity in treatment between whites and blacks, that ought to be addressed. 
That's not the same thing as saying that a fair and equitable and proportionate punishment like the death penalty should be abolished. Sir. Uh, my name's Al. My name's Alex Abrams, and this question is for the Reverend Jackson. Uh, in making your argument about deterrence, you alluded to a shooting that took place in this city less than 36 hours ago, and you said that the officer in question who shot a young man wouldn't, wasn't deterred by the death penalty. I took that to uh, be that you were implying that this officer, uh, Anthony Pellegrini, had in fact committed murder. As far as I know, um, the facts of the case have hardly been brought out. A, a grand jury hasn't even been convened, and the mayor of the city of New York says he doesn't know yet what happened. Could you just say for the record now, are you, are you stating that Anthony Pellegrini, police officer in New York, is a murderer? Colonel's report was he, the coroner's report was he was, he was shot in the back. Um, can you tell me where you know that from? Coroner's report? Well, I it, well, if you want, well, if you want to further pursue it. I'm telling you what the case is. He was shot in the back. That's his answer. And we're going to the next uh, questioner. Go ahead. My name is Wayne Garrity, and I've read that it's actually cheaper to incarcerate. Must, must I say? And even if we're not in the back, with, with mace and gas, there are many ways to disarm one without a gun than to shoot him down, even if we're in the chest. And my point is, civilians don't have the right to kill police. We need police. Police don't have the right to shoot civilians. And it's, all, it's almost never do they pay the price for such killings. It has to stop. I'm urging for the killing, the shooting to stop. White, black, black, white, black, black, police. Let's stop the killing. Let's break the cycle. Okay. Sure. Um, yes. Uh, Actually, this question is for all four panelists. No, no, no. no. You, uh, one question, one panelist. Well, who do you want to pose it to? Anyone who would care to answer this. No. Uh, well, all right. Well, let, I, I, I'd like to ask uh, Stephen Markman. Okay. I've, I've read that it's actually cheaper to incarcerate a prisoner for 40 or 50 years than it is to execute that same prisoner, and that from a dollar and cents point of view, from the taxpayer viewpoint. It actually saves money to put people in prison rather than to execute them. Is that correct? Well, just as the issue of deterrence is apparently irrelevant to my colleagues since they haven't asked my question, answered my question whether or not proof of deterrence would cause them to rethink their position, I am also unimpressed and find irrelevant the issue of the cost of these respective penalties. I think it's far more important to do justice as the people understand it. That is the function of a criminal justice system to express the will of the people in responding to criminal activities. And further, this argument uh, reminds me of the old adage about the orphan who shot, uh, the child who shot his parents seeking the mercy of the court given the fact that the costs of the capital punishment system are as substantial as they are only because capital punishment attorneys have been successful in postponing the execution 9, 10, 11, 12 years on the average. But that does not okay, answer no, the question. There's no, there's no uh, cross dialogue here. Let me also say this. We're not going to be able to reach everybody in line because uh, following this, uh, each side will have a uh, four-minute uh, closing and uh, then uh, you are all invited uh, at your own expense, to the Century uh, Cafe, which is directly across the street. The only expense there is 
depending on how much you drink. Now, My next, I'm going to take two more on each side, uh, and then uh, we'll go to the closings. Go ahead. My name is Irene Stavak, and I ask this of Reverend Jackson. As a reverend, I'm asking this. Um, your colleague, Mr. Hitchens, said that he is absolutely opposed to human sacrifice of any kind and that it would be appalling to the eye and the nose. He was mentioning some graphic pictures of, of, of killing and taking a life and that perhaps we try to murder our victims or, or the death penalty is cheaper, a cheaper solution. And you said to the gentleman just before me that there are many other solutions than killing. I still do not know how it is, therefore, that as a minister, as a man of the cloth, you endorse the taking of a human life when there are so many other alternatives, such as adoption. Um, uh, we're not, how, listen, no, how is this, doesn't no, this contradict We're not going to have a uh, discussion oh, on abortion. Uh, that's been covered. I wanted to know uh, how I understand that. Uh, so, I'm not, uh, he's answered that. He has answered that. You may not like his answer. You may not like his answer, but he has answered it. Then we will now. Did you want to answer? I don't want her to feel cheated. I mean, the point is, I believe that unless there are morally, I mean, medically extenuating circumstances, the woman is treading on very thin ice. But it's her choice, and she must live with those consequences. And that woman's choice, choice is a far more private the state premedicating the murder. And you should not keep making that comparison, in my judgment. Okay. Next. My name is Eli Pariser. Um, I have a question for the National Review. I was wondering if you could speak to uh, whether a life has a price, who can decide that, um, and what it's worth. Um, You've answered it. Answer it again. You've spoken so eloquently. Do it again. They're arguing. Okay. I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you repeat it, please? Who can decide um, how much a life is worth in terms of being able to sacrifice it, except for perhaps the person who lives that life? Well, I'm not sure still I understand the question, but government has as its first responsibility the protection of our domestic tranquility. This is in the preface of our Constitution. This is the reason that governments are created in the first place to protect each of us from domestic and foreign predators. It, the death penalty is one of the variety of sanctions adopted by the government in an effort to try to protect us. This is consistent with the will of the people. This is consistent with what the states have done historically. This is consistent with our Constitution. This is consistent with the Founding Fathers. And most importantly, it's consistent with the values of the American people. It's those values that determine what an appropriate punishment is within the context of our criminal justice system. Okay. Last speaker on that line, and then you'll be the last speaker on this line. Go ahead. Judge Markman, my name is Luke McCarthy. Thank you for coming tonight. You strike me as a man no, no. who has a No, no, deep... uh, the uh, next uh, comment has to be to uh, uh, the proponents. Oh, then to, to the opponents. Okay. Um, to anyone who would like to answer that. Okay. Uh, in 32 of the 38 states which currently have the death penalty, state court judges who review those cases, including post-conviction hearings, 
must stand for periodic election or retention, would you please reconcile that fact with de Tocqueville's tyranny of the majority? You'll have to repeat that question, please. Where are you? And he has to direct it, I think, as well. Well, he's uh, directing it to that table because uh, oh, he's he on that. He's, uh, Unfortunately, the question really doesn't direct quite well to the nation's side of view, and I had intended for no, Judge no, no. Markman. Ask, ask the question again, and we'll... I had unfortunately intended for Judge Markman to answer it. In 32 of the 38 states, yeah. which currently have a death penalty as a legal form of punishment, the state court judges who preside over those hearings including post-conviction review, in which case a technicality may come to light in which a new trial may be offered. Those judges have to stand in 32 of the 38 yeah, states for election or retention. Yeah. Are they therefore subject to de Tocqueville's tyranny of the majority? In other words, are they subject to public opinion and not the true application of the law? I've got you now. Okay. Um, I think the question, in a sense, answers itself. But for those who, who doubt uh, the, the force of, or pungency of the question, there is some very excellent new work on the, on the politicization of the judiciary that's involved in, um, in the capital punishment question and on, on the very clearly uh, politicized and opportunistic uh, decisions made by judges up for re-election who may often, so to speak, stage executions as their political masters have indeed done, as I spent some time saying. Um, in their own behalf. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true, and it's a, it's, a, it's a clear and present danger to everything that's meant by um, the image of justice as detached and disembodied. Last question. My, my name is Jennifer Washburn. Um, this question is actually directed to uh, the Reverend Jackson. No, no, no. next. Well, Next, it's a question that either side can I, answer. I can't help it. Uh, I'll put it, have the, I'll put it to the National Review then. Okay. <laughs> the National Review has blamed uh, rising levels of crime uh, essentially on the reforms of the 1960s, of the criminal justice system in the 1960s. Is that to say that the two panelists from the National Review do not believe that there are other better deterrents to crime than capital punishment? For instance, education, jobs programs, uh, ways to deal with uh, other social imbalances in our society. Okay. It seems the courts for years have been explaining to us that poverty and morality are not synonymous, that we don't have in poverty a ground for excluding people from states. And he is, uh, it's okay, Uncle Fred, uh, we, we, you've done your bit already. You could. Uh, I suddenly realized where I saw him. He, was, he played the male lead in the Noel Coward story. Yeah. Right. Yes, I okay. What was the question? What was the question? Just answer is... What was the question? I can't recall the question. Are there other reasons why, other than capital punishment, look, that crime look, has fallen? We understand that even though the country is richer than it was in the depression, the rate of homicide has increased. We know that, 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 that education, the rising levels of education and rising levels of income are not enough to, to uh, deal with this problem. At a certain point, when we fall into that slot, we seem to treat this problem as one yielding to 
root causes. And we, we use the language of social science to indicate that the criminal behavior of people is essentially determined by these demographic forces. At the same time, when we fall into that mode of thinking about it, what we seem to do is withdraw from the sense that these people out there are not simply automatons determined in their behavior by some natural forces, but they are, they are responsible agents who make decisions and ought to be held responsible. So as, as Mayor Koch once said, as soon as people start talking about these root causes, they seem to give grounds for dissolving responsibility. I would rather recall the grounds of their citizenship and remind them that they're capable of bearing responsibility. Okay, we're at the, we're at the uh, end, uh, just before uh, the uh, closing remarks, and uh, we uh, started uh, with uh, the uh, nation. So, in closing, we'll now start uh, uh, with National Review, and the nation uh, will close. Please. You have four minutes. Our timekeeper will uh, keep the time, and you can divide it any way you wish. One story I... I couldn't tell because of the compression of time, was of a student of mine, Bob Mason, who had a coach in, base in Little League in Los Angeles, and that coach made his way to Canada, where he was in a state of distraction and depression, held up a cab driver, killed the man, and in his panic, left his briefcase there, and when he was he was followed up, he, was, he, he confessed instantly, was immediately affected by remorse. I'm glad that we don't have, didn't have an execution there to add to the situation of a man expiating his guilt. My colleagues seem to have slid past our argument. We were willing, for the sake of argument, to concede most of these instances. If you want, we could even adopt a formula comparable to that in the Constitution about treason when you require two witnesses to an overt act, we could forego most of the executions, and it would still not deal with the essential problem in principle. And that is, if you have a case like when we came up in Frederick County, of a fellow who killed his cousin with eight eyewitnesses and with the initials of the victim on the bullets, we're pretty clear as to who done it without mistakes. The question we're posing is, can you conceive of a situation in which this kind of punishment would indeed be justified and we would give you most of the other cases? The Reverend Jackson says that no one has a right to kill anybody unless it's a woman's choice. And at that moment, we don't raise the question. We don't raise the question of whether it's a human being or whether you're withdrawing a whole class of human beings from the domain of circle of people who are protected from the, by the law or for whom we need to give justifications when we take lives, we simply invoke this label. We might as well say that whether people are executed should be the victim's choice. And we could solve the problem. How, how nice to get around the problem simply by invoking uh, formulas or perhaps even in our advances, we could just give the answer that's adequate for ourselves. I could just hum a few bars of melancholy baby. That's the answer I, I regard as, as sufficient. I think we may be at a situation in which capital punishment may be receding as the most serious kind of question that we would face even in this setting. When we are dealing with capital punishment, it seemed to be, everyone seemed to understand that they want to punish the offender. 
even though they're not sure that they think it's warranted to use the death penalty. But now we have a number of people like Professor Paul Butler at George Washington University simply declaring that black people on juries should not convict black defendants even for the murder of black people. And 80% of the, 80% of the violent crimes suffered by black people are suffered by, at the hands of black offenders. It took us so many years to establish, to fill out the commitments of the 14th Amendment on citizenship, and now in the most curious reversal, we are seeing even black people saying that they are not sure that they have an interest as citizens in protecting the lives of their fellow citizens, in sustaining the laws that protect those lives, and even sustaining the laws that protect the lives of other black people. I will ignore them. I'll see you at 21, and we'll discuss this. Okay. I have I have a hunch that that if if Himmler were here, and we were ready to execute him, we will have candlelight vigils. Right? And once again, I'd say, wrong vigil, wrong victim. Two, two quick points, please. One, I would suggest that capital punishment in the United States of America is the least capriciously imposed criminal sanction in the history of the world, replete with burdens of proofs and procedures and jury unanimity requirements and beyond a reasonable doubt proofs and aggravating and mitigating circumstances and appeals and habeas delays, the least capriciously opposed major sanction. Sec we have to That'll have to wait. Uh, Okay. You can accost them at the bar. Now, gentlemen, quick, quick, quick. Four minutes. Well, let, let me say this. First of all, I would make the case. You, you tend to assume um, if you flip your obsession with abortion question around that just as a, a fetus should not be destroyed, and so the adults shouldn't either. Let's just stop the killing. This past week, Mahmoud Abu-Jamal made an observation in Philadelphia. The former district attorney, a top guard of the homicide unit, admitted in a teaching video that the educated, uneducated female in the city, young black, should never be accepted as jurors serving in a homicide case. It further weakens the moral authority uh, of the state's, state's case for being qualified to kill somebody. I will close on this note. There was a, a biblical story of a woman was being stoned, an act of capital punishment. And Jesus asked, why are you killing this woman? And they said she broke the law. Prostitution. He said, but it's an all-male jury. And you can't prostitute by yourself, where is her partner? Is there any among you who didn't have sex with her, wish you could have, or tried to? If so, throw a rock. And no one threw a rock. And so he said to her, sin no more. The state executioners left frustrated. It was an arrogant, male chauvinistic, upper class punishment for those least able to defend themselves. 2,000 years later, we need a higher ethic. 
Let those who would want to see an end to violence and killing strike the first blow. And let the beam of life obliterate the dark shadow of death. And let us go forward by hope and healing and not backwards by hate and hysteria and fear. Um, I don't want to have it said that uh, we ducked... Um we, it's been said, and I don't think it should be said, that we, we ducked the question of deterrence. The other side admitted that their hypotheses on deterrence were unfalsifiable, which in my young day was a sign of the weakness of an argument rather than its strength. We agreed with them their hypothesis was unfalsifiable. We don't duck their question. I would like to put one to them, though. I, 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 would it, is it my impression, my, mine alone, that to the list of potential crimes for which capital punishment would be necessary, that I adumbrated earlier, we would now have to add a woman and a physician involved in the termination of pregnancy. I must say, from your endless recurrence to this, I can't see how you could argue against it. Now, it pisses me off, I'm sorry to say, to be all the time lectured about the Third Reich and fascism. I think, the, I think we on this side could say that we've stood up against fascism at least as vigorously as, say, the National Review has. And, and require, require no lectures, no lectures from Franco's fans on this subject. But for the sake, for the hygiene of an elementary distinction, let me just say, the point at issue is not, do individuals have the right of self-defense in peacetime, or do nations have the right of self-defense in wartime? We were not met tonight to discuss either of those issues. We were met to discuss, can the state take a human life for a human sacrifice in peacetime? And you dodged it, and it's your shame that you did. That's it? Okay. Hold, hold, gentlemen, hold it one minute. Please, first, I want to um, thank uh, the two uh, sponsors, uh, the Nation and the National Review, and our, and our uh, four participants, and especially the audience. See you at the bar. y'all to have a good day, good week, good night, month, good year, most of all, a beautiful life. Thank you for being you, and TGY, thank God you're alive.